Good morning. Buenos dias. My name is John. This is my wife, Lynn. We're going to be reading from 1 John 4. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You join me in prayer, please. Father, in this uh, busy time of year where Christmas season seems to be taken over with commercialism and haste, Lord, we come to you this morning and slowing down, thanking you for the love that you have given us. Lord, there's nothing that we have done. You initiated it. You loved us first. And that is how we can show love to you and how we can show love to other people. Lord, if we truly understand the price that you paid, we would just be amazed and want to share that love that you have with other people. We ask that you speak through Chris this morning, bring us your word, inspire us, encourage us, and help us to love others with the just unfathomable love that you have for us. Lord, today we ask that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Davies. That's my prayer as well, is that the Lord's uh, word would be made known to all of us this morning and that it would be his that are spoken for us and not mine. Um, I think that's the hope of everybody who would get up on this uh, platform and, and bring the truth of God's word. So I'm excited to do that this morning. So morning. How are y'all? Good. That was lackluster. Okay. Hopefully it gets better from here. Um, just as a reminder, if, this, if you're new to the Grove or you haven't been here through our journey through Advent, let me just kind of remind you where we've been and where we're going today. Um, we have traveled through the last three weeks um, longing and expecting and waiting on the coming of this um, Christ as a baby and yet a king in a manger. And we've talked about some different things that are founded in God himself and that hope and joy and peace are things that ultimately have their source and root in him and that we get to experience in relationship with him. And so as we kind of continue to journey through Advent, this season of slowing down with some specific purposed intent uh, toward looking and longing for this Christ to come, um, we have now entered week four in our Advent journey where we're talking about the Advent or the coming of love. And so I don't know about you, um, but that word has varied meanings for all of us, I think, in our culture and our experience. Um, and I was reminded of a story this week as I was reading and kind of thinking and praying and preparing, and I was reminded of a story of a seminary professor who uh, was one that taught the Christian graces um, uh, and ethics of love and forbearance uh, for 40 years until he retired. And when he retired, he used to occupy himself with all kinds of little things around the house, 
And one of those things was um, he poured himself a new concrete driveway, and um, he stood and admired his work, and then later went in the house to grab a glass of iced tea and rest for a little bit, and decided to come back out and admire his work a little bit more. And um, as he walks outside, he finds a bunch of neighborhood kids playing in the concrete, leaving their handprints and footprints and engraving their names in the concrete, and he just loses it, right? All this hard work and effort, and he gets angry. He starts chasing the kids out of his yard in rage, and he catches some of them, and he starts popping them, right? And his wife is looking out the kitchen window in horror, and she comes out, and she's like, you've been a professor of Christian ethics teaching grace and mercy and love and forgiveness for 40 years, and in a moment's notice, you just blow your entire witness. And his response was one that I thought was quite funny, and it says, um, All of that that I taught was abstract, but this is in the concrete. That was um, exactly how I hoped that you would respond. It was with a little bit of laughter. I told Wiley Park this morning, I said, I've got a little bit of a dad joke to start with. And he was like, oh, man. Ooh, you don't start with a joke because you don't know how it's going to go. And if, it, if nobody laughs, then it's just all downhill. Um, so thank you um, for humoring me this morning. But when I think about love this week, I've thought about all different kinds of things to come up here and start with this morning, like talking about song lyrics to you. And so, like, um, I was going through YouTube, and I was like, what are the top, like, 20 love songs of all time? Some Savage Garden, all you 80s music fans. I knew I loved you before I met you. I can't sing that high. If you ever watch a music video of that, go watch it. It's hilarious. Um, but I think of Whitney Houston, the greatest love of all, right? And then my mind went to this right here. So I'm going to give you a little jingle, and I want you to finish it for me. You ready? Cassie's the only one. Okay. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, McDonald's has gotten you guys too, right? This is, I think, what our culture has kind of taken this word love, and we've made it very sentimental through Hallmark movies, um, which Cassie gasped again because that's where she lives this time of year is in the Hallmark movie channel. Um, but I think what we've done is we've taken this word and we have kind of dumbed it down um, to be more, more sentimental or emotional. And I think it's deeper than that. And so to quote the great theologian Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, you keep using that word, and I don't think it means what you think it means, right? I prepped you for that. The last time I preached, I told you we use Nacho Libre and Princess Bride references often. So don't be surprised that that came up today. Um, but I think that we can all really agree in all seriousness that the word love in our culture really has been emptied uh, of most of its true meaning. Um, and for some of us, it's been emptied of its meaning in the relationships that we find ourselves in that are strained by the effects of sin. And so when we think about a season where we are um, looking at the love of Christ and we are talking about loving one another, um, our experience with that here on this earth um, may ha have left a bitter taste in our mouth. And I think that if we can come back and center ourselves around the Word of God, that we'll see that the true meaning of love and what Christ has done for us, what we'll explore today, um, is one that brings these things that we've already covered, hope and joy and peace for the believer. And so what I want to highlight 
um, is that if you ask a bunch of people what their definition of love is or what they think that love means, you're, you're bound to get a varied array of different answers. Like, I love working in the yard. I love um, my outfit. I love tacos. I love coffee. I love my kids. I love hunting. I love being in the woods. Like, you, you'll get a different response no matter who you ask. And so what I want to submit to us today is that if this word has truly been emptied of its power, then I think we as Christians have also lost some of the awe and some of the weight of worship um, that should accompany um, this or should be occurring in our hearts in light of the love that God has shown us, okay? And so for you, maybe type A people who like to know where we're going and have the bullet points, here's where we're going today. Love has its origin in God primarily. Love is demonstrated in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And finally, love is um, something that should motivate us to love others and is also perfected in our obedience. So let's dig in. If we look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4 that the Davies read for us this morning, this is what we see. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So we see there that love has its source and its origin in the person of God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so we see that not only is it sourced in him, but is who he is in nature, in his nature. So as we look through um, John's writings here, the word love is the word agape in the Greek. And if you've been in or around church for any length of time, you've heard this word mentioned. And he uses it 30 times between verse 7 in chapter 4 and verse 3 in chapter 5. 30 times. And it's this picture of this unconditional, affectionate regard and benevolence toward someone. And so verses 7 and 8 depict for us that true biblical love, as I said, has its origin in God. It's found in him, and it's one of his divine attributes. It's who he is, part of who he is. So because this is who he is, it means that all of his actions come from a place of love, no matter how we might understand them. And the main action that, that God has demonstrated for us is his unconditional affectionate regard and benevolence toward us, his creation, and he demonstrated this by the sending of his son in the life and the death of Christ. And so let's jump ahead to verses 9 and 10. We're already in point two, y'all. It's going to be a little bit of a longer point, though, so hang with me. In verse 9, it says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. We'll come back to that in a second. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so in verse 9, where it says um, God came to, to live among us, this is this idea that God has made love visible and tangible to us. The beauty of this reality that God has manifested himself in the person of Jesus among us is that this really stood in stark contrast to a lot of the Near Eastern religions that the people that John is writing to would have understood. And so here's what I mean. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect unity and communion 
deeply committed in love to one another and with one another, out of the overflow of that perfect, beautiful thing, gets dumped out onto the canvas of creation. And so everywhere we look, we get to observe and see an overflow of this perfection of God's love and his character and his nature. And the Near Eastern religions in that time, they carry with them different stories of gods who would be at war and at odds with one another and would fight one another. For example, the Babylonians believed that creation of the world is a result of a a god named Marduk and a god named Tiamat who um, were at war and were fighting, and Marduk killed the other god, and it's the Euphrates River and the Tigris River that now flows from the eyes of this god that was defeated, and that's how they got created. And so there's this just crazy stuff all throughout Near Eastern uh, uh, culture and, and religion and all these myths that these people would have heard about, would have maybe believed or understood to be true. And so the Judeo-Christian story of creation is an account where the beauty and the love and the union of the Trinity are what spills out onto creation, not war and conflict, but peace and unity and oneness. And so if you think about this season of Advent, if you think about the real scandal of Advent, the real scandal of Christmas is that this second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, eternal with the Father, present at creation in perfect harmony with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit, he condescends and comes down to earth and puts this on. And some of you may have a better physique than me and be like, yeah, I, got it. I can understand why. Ripped, right? Um, but but think, if you really think about that in all seriousness, like he comes down to earth and he takes on human form, susceptible to the pains and the suffering of this world, susceptible to sickness. Like think about him coming in a manger. He was in need of being fed and nourished by his mother. He was in need of being cared for and burnt. He needed naps, right? He became like us. He dwelt among us. This is a historically verified person of Jesus, and he came so that you and I might have life. And so here in verse 10 is how he defines Love. If you read verse 10, love is defined in that scripture verse as the sending of the Son and what the mission of the Son is. We also see this as kind of a commentary to John 3, 16 and 17, which we all probably know, right? And then also with John 15, verses 13 and 14, that says, greater love has no one than this, that someone that lay down his life for his friends, and it goes on. And so then how is love defined here? I think we define love like this. It's the perfect Holy One, approaching those of us, all humankind, who are imperfect and unrighteous and laying down his own life so that they may be ransomed and rescued from their foolishness. Now, here's the hard part, and here's where I want to be. make sure I take some time and I go slow and I'm, I'm really clear about what I mean here, is that we can't get away in this verse from that word propitiation. And this is a hard Word, Because right in the middle of this declaration of God's love and of his beauty and truth and goodness is this word propitiation, which literally means to appease wrath. And so on four separate occasions in the Bible, we read that God is love, period. It's who he is. But on 600 different occasions throughout scripture, we also read that God is holy, 
And so what I want to submit to you this morning is that because God is love, God is love because God is holy. And the more that, I think if we think about it, the more you and I love something purely, the more capacity that we have for wrath. And so if that's true of us in failed human form, how much more so with God. And so this is what I mean by that. I'll take my marriage for an example. Like I love my wife to death. We had just celebrated 16 years of marriage. If you've known Kristen for a moment, you it's to like love her. She is just great. She's, um, she's super smart. She's witty. She just loves people well. She's very caring and nurturing. And so as we journey through life and marriage together and ministry together, the more time I spend with her, the more effect, my affection for her grows, the more lo- my love for her grows. And so when I think about somebody coming against her, or when I think about somebody putting her in danger— um, I really have to fight against what I call the, the BC Chris, the before Christ Chris, from coming out in anger um, and wrecking shop on some fools um, when they want to come against my bride. And right, wrong, or indifferent, I've even come to my kids when they're talking like they shouldn't be to their mom, and I look at them and go, do not speak to my wife that way. She's no longer their mom in that moment. She's my bride. Don't talk to her that way. And so take that for what it is, but then the reality, that response is really based out of anger, right? And I want to be judge and justifier in that moment, and that is ultimately not Christ honoring. But I think that when we look at what God has done, this is, this is, um, God has loved us, and because he is holy, and since his love is pure and perfect, then that means that his capacity for wrath towards sin is very real and very present. And we can't get away from that. And so in this book called The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says this about God's holiness and his wrath. God is holy, and he has made holiness the moral condition necessary to the health of his universe. And then he goes on to say, God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys it. And so it's not enough for me to stand up here and give you my thoughts and opinions on the scriptures. That, that's, we need to go to the scriptures and see, like, what does the Lord say about his posture towards sin and towards sinners? So a couple of these will come up on the screen, but Psalm 5, 5, it says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate evildoers. What? Not just evil. You hate evildoers, but God doesn't hate. He's pretty serious about sin and about sinners. Psalm eleven five says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. This one should come up behind me, but Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And then if you remember in Malachi, we're reminded that God said, Jacob I loved and Esau I I hated. If we look at Colossians 1 verse 21, it tells us what our posture and our position is to God before we become believers. It says this, and you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So before Christ, 
our position before God was an object of his wrath. We were enemies of him. It says that, right? We were alienated. We were not even a part of his camp. We were separated out. And if you think, well, no big deal. Um, I, I'm not really that bad of a person. No, it says that like we were hostile in our minds. We, we thought evil things. Well, I really don't, I don't really sin like other people sin. Yeah, but it also says we were doing evil deeds. So like none of us get out of this, right? And so I want to be really clear right here about what I'm saying. This is how the sinner stands before God and before the atoning blood of Jesus rests and settles on the soul of one who has placed their trust in Christ. Okay? When we come to faith, we'll see in just a minute, we're no longer an object of his wrath because Jesus' sacrifice has taken that for us. And so what do we do with this? A God who clearly hates sin, but in, in Scripture clearly hates the evildoer. Haven't we said this? God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And I think we do that with good intention. But I think if we really like dug in and thought about that, like, no, before, before the blood of Jesus covers all of that, like, we are objects of his wrath. And so I wonder if this is really just us trying to bring God down to our level and to make his love more palatable or to make it more sentimental, like a Hallmark movie. Um, and, and these are hard, this is a hard saying in scripture and we can't get around it. This propitiation that he has, this appeasement of his wrath that is necessary. But I think his love again is so huge that his capacity for wrath is very real and very present. And so I've been convicted of this throughout the week. I've, I've had to repent multiple times. It's interesting that as you um, prepare to teach and, and preach, um, the enemy doesn't like that. Like last night was just a long night with very little sleep and just kind of playing over and over in my mind, like making sure, do, am I saying the right thing? Should I say this? Should I, should I not? Like he doesn't want the word of God to be proclaimed, right? And so um, I've had to confess to the Lord that I, I treat his holiness, that aspect of his character, and his deep love for us just very flippantly at times. Um, and I wonder, church, if we realize that, um, that this just really isn't a game. Um, this is something that should be taken seriously. Because when we shrink God down to fit into our cultural constraints, the cross is ultimately diminished. The work that is already finished on the cross gets real small when we don't see him for who he truly is. We show this often, right? This cross chart. If you've been here any length of time, you've seen that where as we have a growing understanding of, of God's holiness and, an, and a growing understanding of our own particular sinfulness, the cross that's in the middle of that chart just gets bigger and bigger over, over time. So now, because God is also loving, because it's in his nature to give of himself for the benefit of others, even his enemies, let's look at what he does. Romans 5, 6 through 11. <clears throat> for while we were still weak, we weren't strong. We didn't have it all together. We hadn't defeated that besetting sin that was just eating us alive. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's nothing we could give him objects of his wrath, enemies of his, and yet this is what he does. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, look at this, from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinner, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This should make us rejoice. And the reason I go through all that and say all that is because I think we're missing the boat if we don't have a good and a right understanding of exactly how God sees us without his son. And so he can look at us now as believers, and what he sees is not you and your sin. He sees the blood of his son covering all of that, and that's an important distinction. And for those of us that may be in this room that have not yet trusted in Christ, it's been said before from up here, but somebody's going to pay for our sin. Do you want it to be you, or do you want it to be the blood of Jesus that's already done that for you on your behalf? God sent his son from heaven where he was in eternal existence and was not lonely and not in need of company, but the triune God existed forever in perfect and in loving community and communion. He wasn't lonely, he was loving church. He sent Christ into enemy territory, into a world on a search and rescue mission for enemies of his who were in opposition to him, who were thinking evil thoughts in their mind and doing evil deeds. He came looking for us even when we weren't looking for him. And why did he come? Verse 9 tells us it's so that we might live through him. So what does it mean then to live through him? I think it means to be born of God and to know God. It means to experience his love and then to also share that love with other people. It means to enjoy fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It means to walk in the light. It means to enjoy fellowship with one another, confess and repent and receive forgiveness of sins, walk as Jesus walked, abide in his word, abide in his will and ways, know the truth, be confident at his second coming. Because of Christ, we have victory over sin and so much more. What a life the Son provides us. So how do we respond then? Because God's love for us should motivate us then to love other people as he's commanded it in scripture. And we see in verses 11 and 12 that that love, when we obey Christ and love like he's loved us, is perfected in our obedience. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected. In us, God's love should motivate us to love other people. We send you out every week to your neighborhoods, to the networks, and to the nations. We're not saying that just to fill space with words. This is our, should be our goal and our heart and our motivation as believers. It's because of what the Lord has done for us. We're then motivated to go and to take this good news to those around us. But I think it's too often the case that Christians are really known in culture for not being very loving. Um, And although some of that criticism may be unjustified, there's a lot of it that probably is justified. And the people who are not a part of the church around us, how do they see you, knowing that you're a Christian? Do they see you as a bigot? Do they see you as homophobic? Do they see you as somebody who's just hateful toward their neighbor, who's always angry and bitter? Or do they see you as a person who is over come with joy and peace and loves no matter what the cost might be 
to themselves. So John 13, 34 and 35 says this, Jesus gave us a new commandment to love one another, and by this, by this love for one another, people are going to know that we're his disciples. He also says to love our enemies and to pray for those who hate us and who might harm us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. And so the challenging application to these commands is that we must go to those people who don't want us there. We must share the gospel with people who don't want to hear it. We must love those who may hate us or even kill us. Because we are connected to Jesus, we must go and live like Jesus among our friends and our enemies. And so I want to close with this. As we end today, I think John makes two points um, when he says that we should love one another. And the first one is that by loving one another, it's proof that God actually abides in us continually. And that by loving one another, God's love for us, this, this love that we've just walked through and looked at, is actually perfected in us and brought to complete maturity when we obey and actually live it out. It reaches its intended goal. And so I think John's point is twofold. First, I can love others as God loves me because he lives in me. And so I now have the power to do it. And second, his love will reach its intended goal, when it is that, which is that I will love others as he has loved me. And so it's this beautiful, wonderful, theological circle of truth that God is not only the source of love, he's the one who maintains it, and he's the one who perfects it in us when we obey. And it's all from God. It's who he is from beginning to end. And so as we get ready to close today, and I pray over us, um, we don't typically do this, but I'm going to be here down front at the end of, of service. Um, if you don't know the Lord in here, uh, my prayer has been all week that, that when we hear a sermon like this, when we hear scripture like this, that we would just have a true and a right understanding of where we really are and just be honest with that. Um, and also know that like God sees all that and there's nothing in hiding from him. And, and yet he's come anyway. And so if you don't know him, like I'd love to help you come to know him. Um, and I know our other elders here and leaders here would, would love to do the same. And so um, if that's you today, um, I'll be down here at the front for a little while after our gathering. And I would love to um, just chat with you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I've just been struck all week um, and have cried on multiple occasions preparing this and, and even reading through it this morning before coming here. As I just look at my own life and, and a little bit of the chaos that's going on just even within my own world, and I just think about all the people sitting here in this room and, and our different stories and our, and, our, and our different lives and things that are happening in them right now, and I think it's really easy for our circumstances to get in the way, even this week for me, to draw our attention away from the fact that you see and you know and you've provided a way for hope and peace and joy and for your love to really just be experienced. And so no matter what our... Um, no matter what our experience on this earth was, it has been like with, with relationships that have failed us, where um, maybe we should have been loved in, in the real sense of the word, and, and, and sin has gotten in the way of that, and so we've been wounded um, instead of experiencing your love and your peace and your joy and all these things that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. Um, God, I pray that you would just remind us continually that you've made a way that you um, had a posture of wrath towards sin and yet knew that we could not satisfy 
appeasing that wrath. And so in your sovereignty, you sent your son to stand in the way and to, and to be the one who has reconciled us and brought us back. So now we can be, as believers, called sons and daughters and be given things like joy and peace and hope and love. So God, thank you for that reality. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your posture towards us sinners. When we don't deserve it, um, you made a way. So let us live and let us love in gratitude for what you've done for us. In your name we pray, amen.